when you talk about resilience of some of the countries, uh, resilience is not a given. It's built, it's reinforced, it's built through institutional uh, capacity, through governance improvement. So this is this is directly related to ESG. When you talk about the effect of the pandemic and its cost, either in terms of health costs or uh, in terms of uh, economic costs and social costs, this has direct links to ESG. When you talk about some recent climatic events or disasters that came to add to some of the pandemic effects in some of the countries, this is also related to ESG. So really, I think that ESG is, is really related to many, many questions that we are are talking and is very permeable to a lot of analysis that we're doing and to our investment methodology. That was Kautar Edamani, a managing director within Bearings Emerging Markets Deck Group. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number 10 of season four of Streaming Income. All season long, we are diving deep into the factors shaping today's markets across asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can follow us by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. My guests today are Ricardo Adrogue, Head of Global Sovereign Debt and Currencies at Barings, and Kautar Edamani, a Managing Director within Barings Emerging Markets Debt Group. In the conversation, we covered a lot of ground on all things emerging markets debt. Specifically, we talked about what's driven performance for the asset class year to date, and how factors like higher interest rates, inflation, and even a potential removal of emergency stimulus measures could impact the outlook. We also spoke extensively about ESG, including how environmental, social, and governance factors are impacting the long-term growth outlooks for various emerging market countries. Uh, We talked about what some of the challenges are for managers when it comes to analyzing and incorporating ESG into emerging market debt analysis, and also some of the methodologies that the Bearings team is implementing today to try to tackle these challenges. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Ricardo Adroge and Kautar Edamani. All right, Ricardo Adroge and Kautar Edamane, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, excited to have you on Streaming Income and excited to talk about emerging markets. Um, Kautar, where are you calling in from today? I am joining from London in the UK. Awesome. Awesome. Glad to hear things are, uh, are opening up there and the weather is uh, improving. Ricardo, uh, how about you? I'm from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Great place to be. I'm a little bit jealous, but uh, that, that's uh, that's a good place to be doing a virtual podcast from. So, all right, well, let's get into it. Um, we had your colleague, uh, Jem, on the show back in January, and we talked about all things uh, emerging markets back then, including how different uh, EMs were uh, handling the pandemic and what that's meant for performance, et cetera. So obviously a lot's happened uh, since then, economically uh, with regards to the pandemic itself, and then of course with markets. So we're hoping to get caught up on all of that, um, but also we want to uh, take a 
closer look at uh, the asset class through the lens of ESG, which I know both of you have done a tremendous amount of work on. And uh, I'd like for uh, our listeners to kind of hear how you're thinking about that today. So Ricardo, with that as background, can you give us a sense as to where we are today when it comes to emerging markets debt, including how the asset class has performed year to date and maybe what you see uh, as some of the uh, potential drivers of performance throughout the rest of this year and into next year. Sure, Greg, it's great to be here. Um, so let me take us a little bit, a few months back to late 2020, uh, months of October, November, when the vaccine was started to come out and prove effective. And us and most of the market perceived that to be the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we perceived that as vaccines were rolling or were going to be rolled out across the world, that was going to allow for global growth to be very strong. At the time that global financial conditions, namely monetary conditions led by the ECB and the Fed, were going to remain loose. So towards the end of 2020, we perceived to be a very good environment for emerging markets, strong growth, loose financial conditions. Now, fast forward to around today, uh, emerging market indices, the market, the financial market, the fixed income market has not been um, as constructed. Returns have been lackluster. Uh, the corporate bond markets has been the one performing best and basically has returned zero in US dollar terms or slightly positive year to date. And the sovereign strategies, hard currency and local have been negative uh, in the order of one to two percentage points. So what happened? What, what did we get so wrong? What appears to be is that the world and analysts out there saw global recovery, but they perceive them to be um, the recovery to be more in the hands of developed markets. And initially, their forecast on growth for emerging markets was on the weaker side because they perceived the pandemic to continue to have very strong negative effects on emerging markets. At the same time, the market also perceived that some inflation readings, especially in the US, were going to be high. Um, meaning the price level in the U.S. in the month of March, April, May, and potentially June, was going to be significantly above where they were in the same months of 2020. That's called base effects. On the back of that, as inflation measured by that price level differential being significantly above the central bank target, the Fed target, and the perception was that the Fed at some point may need to start tightening policy and potentially be sooner than later much like it happened in the taper tantrum in 2013. Now, um, that was the first two months of the year, January and February. We saw interest rates in the U.S. go up and correspondingly emerging market fixed income assets not performing very well. But since late February, early March, we started to see a recovery. We perceive that today we are potentially the same place where we thought we were in December 2020, meaning very strong growth and global financial conditions that are and will continue to be loose. The difference this time is that most analysts now perceive global growth and especially emerging market growth to be significantly higher than what they thought it was going to be in late 2020. <clears throat> if you take WIO indicators or if you take uh, World Bank uh, a- analysis or if you take forecasts by most brokers, GDP growth for emerging markets in 2021 is being revised by two to three percentage points from where they were forecasting in December 2020. So if in December 2020, a country was forecasted to have growth of around 5% in 2021, then nowadays they are forecasting that growth to be in the order of seven to 
and potentially we think it could be higher. And the reason has been the pandemic has continued to um, be a very negative event on emerging markets, especially on the health side. We're seeing lockdowns being rolled out in many, many different countries. We have announcements in Malaysia, we have announcements in Argentina, different countries around the world. But the economic consequences of that pandemic has been uh, smaller and smaller. Countries, individuals, companies have learned to live with the pandemic and have learned to produce and continue their life with this terrible disease. And in the meantime, we're seeing vaccination that is extending to the emerging markets as well. And so the growth expectations going forward is very strong. The big risk, the way we see it, is that, yes, uh, inflation, the way it is measured in terms of price level change from one year to the next, will continue to be on the high side. And so that is potentially testing the nerves of the Fed officials um, and potentially also the ECB. Our perception is that both the ECB and the Fed will not do what they did in 2013 or again in 2016-17, where they started to remove accommodation. At the time, it seemed to be the right thing to do. Exposed, we realized it was a little too soon. Inflation never really got back to the levels that those central banks wanted to have. And now the Fed has a tool or has a communication that is consistent with that. The Fed, in the recent years, have changed to average inflation targeting. And what that means is that the Fed has announced that they will accept higher inflation than the 2% target over an, a period of time. We don't know what that period of time is. We don't know if they're averaging over five years, over 10 years, over three years. And so this is what the market seem to be and we are focusing on. Is the Fed targeting inflation, average inflation over a decently long um, horizon such that they can continue to be loose in the context of current inflation readings that are high. Our perception is that they will. And so strong growth and loose monetary for conditions is a very, very good environment for emerging markets. That's a great uh, background, Ricardo. And uh, and actually, that's very encouraging to hear uh, on the economic front in terms of you know, where you see uh, there, you know, there's a potential, I guess, for, you know, economic upside and maybe even positive surprises. So I want to come back to that. Uh, But maybe first, uh, Kautar, I think it would be worth, uh, you know, going into a little bit more detail just on the pandemic itself, because, you know, Ricardo mentioned that different countries are managing the the pandemic in in different ways. Um, but you know, there's no escaping the fact that the pandemic is still very much with us, especially in emerging market countries where vaccines uh, have been slower to roll out, uh, and and you know, there's been many uh, challenges uh, to say the least. So, talk to us about just how you and the team are trying to get your arms around that, because I imagine that you know, trying to analyze emerging markets that anytime is a is a challenge, but trying to do so in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, would seem like an extreme challenge. So how are you and the team uh, thinking about that and how are you factoring in the pandemic to your investment process? Yes, thanks, Greg. Uh, I think that uh, as you were as we were mentioning, I mean, Ricardo underlined the overall favorable outlook for the asset class and for emerging markets countries in general. But it's true that there is differentiation in how countries have reacted to this global shock. Um, and broadly speaking, maybe we can classify them into three categories. It's, it's just for illustration. This might be oversimplifying at times, but I think it, it helps depict a, a synthetic picture. 
the first group is the countries which have proven more resilient um, to the shock or to the pandemic crisis uh, more than expected. For instance, I can give a couple of examples. I mean, Ricardo was mentioning uh, better economic growth forecasts now uh, versus what they were um, six or nine months ago. I was just last week on a virtual investor trip to Ukraine, and it's true that everybody we talked to, either the authorities or the IMF or independent observers or economists, have underlined how economic growth this year uh, so far have outperformed uh, all the projections that were made last year following the beginning of the shock. So that's an example uh, of resilience. Another example is uh, the resilience of um, economic items like uh, remittances. Um, the World Bank and the IMF had put out reports last year expressing fears uh, that the remittances might uh, collapse because of difficult uh, economic environments in the countries where the diaspora from emerging market countries were located. But in fact, all the remittance numbers in all the countries, almost without exceptions, have surprised to the upside. Because it just so happened that, uh, in fact, there was a counter-cyclical uh, behavior of remittances and that people tend to send more money uh, home uh, to support their families when home country is affected by a difficult shock. And so you can see that for some of these countries which have uh, a big component of remittances uh, in their external balances, uh, they have benefited from this, this upside. The second category is the countries for which significant fragilities already existed before the pandemic. And while the pandemic was not the main uh, factor for causing the crisis, uh, the, it, it certainly precipitated economic uh, crisis and collapse. And uh, examples uh, for, for this category are countries which have defaulted on their external debt last year, uh, like uh, Argentina and Ecuador. These are countries which already suffered from uh, significant weaknesses before the pandemic. And then this pandemic shock precipitated their economic hardship. And finally, the third category of countries uh, are the countries which are still in a type of limbo due to uncertainties uh, that are related to, you know, recovery timing. Um, and also if they manage to overcome the fragilities that the pandemic have uncovered about their economy. Uh, I can think of two examples. Uh, the first one, for instance, is Zambia. Zambia has had problems in the past uh, in terms of their uh, economic management. And uh, while they should be benefiting from historically high prices of copper, which is an important commodity for Zambia, uh, this doesn't show in the macroeconomic indicators. And that is due to uncertainties in terms of uh, policy making and politics as well. Uh, another example is Sri Lanka, uh, for which the pandemic has caused um, more fragilities in the economy and for which we are still waiting to see whether a recovery in tourism, for instance, might help uh, put the economy back on uh, a recovery track, um, as well as, you know, continuation of structural reforms, as well as support from international partners of Sri Lanka. So this is just a general overview 
And I'm happy to give more examples uh, or more clarifications. Yeah, thank you for that, Kautar. And I think that's a great uh, reminder that it's a mistake to uh, paint emerging markets with a broad brush, given uh, that different countries are managing their situations so differently. And and there are so many different variables impacting uh, all of them. And of course, you know, our listeners uh, will have heard us with regards to emerging markets debt and some other asset classes as well talk a lot about active management. But I think um, this differentiation between uh, countries can really impact their performance and I think really does underpin, uh, you know, an active approach to this asset class. So, you know, maybe, uh, you know, as we turn to, you know, think about some of the economic factors, I guess, that are impacting countries differently. You know, Ricardo, you spoke at the beginning of this conversation about some of the these economic drivers, whether we're talking about the potential impact of inflation or higher rates, or as we move toward an environment where developed market central banks are taking away some of these emergency liquidity measures. So tell us about, you know, your thoughts there and uh, in, in how that could impact the economic picture for emerging markets in, in the year and years ahead. Certainly. And I would say that um, we may be perceiving a, a sense of deja vu. Uh, we have been here. Uh, we have been here in 2013. We have been here in 2017. Um, the question is, are we going to follow the same path that the Fed and the ECB fell into the past two times? Uh, what I mean by that is, back then we had tapered tantrum in 2013, and we have in 2017 that the Fed started hiking rates. Uh, in both cases, with an ex post, basically Monday morning quarterback um, playbook, we realized that there were slight mistakes, not just for emerging markets, but for uh, the inflation uh, path of the US. This time, what we see is that the Fed and the ECB have done a lot more than they have done any prior time. And so uh, the the potential need to remove accommodation is clearly there. Now, the way they seem to be playing it, and we'll have to see how they operate in the next few months, is that they have reduced the pace. They have done a very big push on the at the time of the pandemic. And now they are uh, continuing to expand their balance sheets, but at a slightly lower pace. Now, for emerging markets and for the world, actually, for uh, the inflation credential of the developed markets, uh, these central banks, we perceive, will need to stay accommodative longer than the market seems to be willing to accept. And the reason is that inflation, uh, as I said, surprise on the high side. Uh, that, for now, appears to be base effects. But the risk is that those base effects translate into uh, contaminating inflation expectations. And that's the fear of central banks. And therefore, on the back of that fear, they could retrench accommodation. Now, one big change that has taken place at the Fed level is that the Fed is now targeting average inflation over several years. They have not defined how many years. They have not defined how much they want the average inflation to deviate from the 2% official target. So there's a lot of uncertainties. But at the same time, given what uh, Jerome Powell has been saying, it appears that the Fed will be willing to allow for inflation to stay relatively high for several quarters. That would be a very good environment for emerging markets. But obviously, that will cause um, inflation to be slightly higher than what the market has been perceiving for future years. And that would mean that global interest rates over the medium term 
will finally rise to where they were uh, pre-pandemics and above. Uh, now, that would be a very good environment for emerging markets, but it's very dependent on what the Fed does uh, in the next few meetings and also the ECB. Staying with that, um, even if the financial conditions in the world are not as accommodative as we perceive, growth has been, as I mentioned, stronger, but most, most importantly, the financial needs of these emerging markets have continued to go down. If you look at 2013 and then you look at 2017 and you look at now, um, in 2013, emerging markets had needs of about $200 billion in a, in a complex of emerging markets uh, that includes most emerging markets, including China. In 2017, those were about $100 billion, and now it's basically zero. So a tighter global financial condition should, on a forward-looking basis, have a smaller effect, even if one were to materialize. So good environment. The Fed continues to be loose. The ECB continues to be loose. Growth continues to surprise on the high side. Inflation is a little bit higher than what the market had predicted, but that is a very, very good environment for the next uh, four quarters in emerging markets. And that's we believe that that's a baseline scenario. Okay. And then with that as a backdrop, are there any countries that jump out to you that could be candidates for a surprise to the upside when it comes to economic growth? Most countries that are on the high yield category would benefit uh, most significantly. Countries that are more uh, developed um, could potentially not be as um, beneficial. In particular, one area that we have been exploring and maybe Kautar wants to talk more about is those countries that are exposed to tourism. Tourism has been the one industry that has suffered the most because of the pandemic. As tourism opens up, and there's a big debate uh, whether people from developed markets that are vaccinated will go to emerging markets where vaccination has not reached everyone in the population. Uh, but should they go, then uh, that would be a really big pull for emerging market growth. And so those include the likes of Thailand, two Dominican Republic, two countries in, in, in Africa, uh, like Kenya or others that could benefit a lot from tourism. Altar, that's pretty interesting. Um, I hadn't been thinking that much about tourism, but uh, what's your initial thought or reaction on that? I mean, is there any way to model or anticipate how willing travelers will be to, to visit some of these countries with low vaccination rates? Yes, absolutely. I think we have been relatively conservative in our forecasts or analysis on, on the countries that would be benefiting from tourism just because there are always last minute headlines on new variant, new lockdowns, slowdown in vaccination efforts and etc. And also regulatory and government decisions around allowing or restricting travel um, but in general, yes, I think that there are several countries that are very likely to benefit from a tourism recovery. Ricardo mentioned that there are some countries in Asia, some countries in, Latin, in Central America and the Caribbean. You have also the countries around the Mediterranean uh, um, that are very likely to, to benefit. And for, for some of these countries, the impact can be quite significant in terms of the, on the external balances, you know, on some of the fiscal balances, on the growth and employment uh, figures as well. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Croatia, Central America and Caribbean is the same. And um, I think in general, uh, 
it, it can be that in the short term, maybe some of the tourism will be more localized and therefore the traditional markets of these countries are to be observed. For instance, for the Mediterranean country, it should be mostly European tourists, maybe for Latin American and Central American countries, uh, it should be more North America. Maybe the, the Asian tourism will, will resume regionally first rather than internationally. So some of these trends are to be uh, monitored. But uh, definitely, there is a strong upside for some countries uh, to recover these tourism uh, flows that, that they have lost over the past 18 months. And I would add um, that we have had experiences of countries that have been in singly or individually affected by events in those countries that affected directly tourism. Uh, tourism. So we have seen uh, cases of attacks, for example, in Egypt or Tunisia in different times. And if we take those as proxy for what may happen at the global level from uh, the pandemic, then the recovery in tourism is likely to be very, very strong. And what I mean here is, if you think that it's individual tourist destination, uh, a, an event affecting an individual tourist destination has a temporary, really relatively short event or effect on uh, its tourism, um, at the global pandemic level, where people will continue to do tourism, um, is likely to cause it, the recovery of tourism to be very, very quick. Uh, now, this, uh, the other way to look at how tourism could recover is countries have started to open up. So we have Israel, we have the US, and then um, China has remained open for the most part. And so by looking at how uh, in those countries um, the tourists start to move and how travel starts to happen gives us a good indication on how fast tourism could actually come back come back yeah i mean there's got to be a tremendous amount of pent-up demand i know even just with domestic travel we're we're uh we're late to book our summer holiday this year and it seems like uh absolutely everything is booked now obviously that's not emerging market travel but i think the phenomena is the same across the world is that if you take the entire world population off of leisure travel for a year uh there's got to be a very strong uh comeback so it'll be interesting to see that um play out in the next uh, year or so um Kautar, uh, Ricardo was talking about how, you know, potential growth surprises could impact um, different emerging markets differently. And, and also, uh, you know, some of the factors driving that like developed market interest rates, inflation, et cetera. But obviously there's other factors that are driving um, the growth outlooks for different emerging markets. And one of those, one of the, the main areas is ESG related factors. Um, and I know that you and the team have done a lot of work looking at uh, what you call sustainable growth, uh, which obviously looks at a longer um, time horizon. So I'm hoping that, you know, maybe from a high level, um, you can tell us about some of the work that you and the team have done on this subject and give our listeners an overview of how you're thinking about ESG uh, in emerging markets from a high level and maybe how it can contribute to uh, sustainable growth and in the investment outlook uh, more broadly. Yes, thanks, Greg. Well, to be honest, I was seeing ESG everywhere in some of the topics that we have been discussing. Maybe, maybe it's my bias as somebody who looked a lot at ESG. But even during our conversation now, I mean, when you talk about resilience of some of the countries, uh, resilience is not a given. It's built, it's reinforced, it's built through institutional uh, capacity, through governance improvement. So this is 
this is uh, due directly related to ESG. When you talk about the effect of the pandemic uh, and its cost, either in terms of health costs or uh, in terms of uh, economic costs and social costs, this has direct links to ESG. When you think about, you know, how the pandemic management influenced quite important political shifts in many countries, and there were waves of political headlines in, in countries like in South America, for instance, or Latin America in general, um, over the past year that, that surprised some people, they are related to ESG. When you talk about some recent climatic events or disasters that came to add to some of the pandemic effects in some of the countries, this is also related to ESG. So really, I think that ESG is, is really related to many, many questions that we are, are talking and is very permeable to a lot of the analysis that we're, that we're doing and to our investment methodology. So to summarize, maybe some of the, um, some of the principles that we rely on for, for our ESG methodology, we, we have thought a lot about how to think about ESG and specifically in emerging markets and specifically for sovereigns. The sovereigns are a specific asset class. It's very difficult um, to think about ESG for this asset class. There are numerous considerations, criteria, indicators. Um, there is also the fact that when you talk about ESG, well, originally it was about co corporate and social responsibility for companies, and it was the responsibility of investors as uh, shareholders or bondholders or debt holders to intervene in order to stir the company in the right direction. When you're talking about a country and its, uh, and its creditors, it's, it's very different relationships. You start having uh, you know, considerations around the sovereignty, around political feasibility, around many, many different parameters. And so we try to be as consistent as possible um, in order to, to think about this topic and also to rely heavily on findings from uh, the economics uh, literature, academic economic literature, and particularly development economics. And so the conclusion that we have reached is that uh, we are going to uh, divide the ESG principles into three. When looking at a country and assessing it on ESG grounds, we are going to look at how the government of the country is doing in terms of growing the pie uh, over the medium term. And that's uh, about achieving sustainable growth for the population uh, in order to improve their living conditions over a certain period of time. Uh, that is directly related to the findings of development economics literature. Uh, the, the, the literature found, for instance, that development is, re is related to achieving growth acceleration periods um, over a certain time frame and building resilience to shocks when they happen, external shocks. The second dimension is about di dividing that point as it goes, and that's around the social dimension. How do the benefits of growth get divided between the different constituents of the society? How do social outcomes improve with the improvement of the standards of living and of the national income? How do inequalities evolve? What are the policies that are put in place by the government to ensure that the dividends of growth are equally shared? Uh, so all of these are considerations that we look into when we consider the social pillar. 
And then finally, uh, last but not least, it's about preserving the ingredients. And that's about the, the, uh, the environmental uh, pillar. And that's very important because preserving the ingredients is about, of course, pre preserving the natural endowment of the country. Um, and also, not only in terms of looking at the country's natural resources and uh, contribution uh, to, you know, climate change and global pollution, but also the impact on the country's uh, long-term sustainability. And we were discussing actually China uh, decarbonization just two weeks ago. And it was in really interesting to, to, to discuss not only the external pressure for China to, to improve on uh, the environmental uh, achievements or to, to improve, for instance, on the, the carbon emission metrics on or on other uh, types of environmental metrics, but also the internal pressure for China to reduce pollution level, uh, the impact that it has on the citizens' health, on the Yangtze River pollution levels. And so many things are being done uh, by the Chinese authorities who are very, very aware of both the external and the internal uh, pressure around preserving the uh, the the ingredients of growth sustainably for its population. Yeah, that's that's great context, Qatar. And I know that you and the team have done a tremendous amount of work in this area. And fortunately for all of us, you've uh, shared uh, you know much of that in writing. And I'm actually looking at a piece right now. I think this is the most recent piece that you and the team have put out on the subject. Um, if our listeners want to look at it, it's they can go to bearings. Uh, com, uh, scroll to viewpoints, emerging markets debt, I think, uh, and they can find a piece called uh, Finding the Right Sovereign ESG Indicators, a Greek Tragedy, question mark. Um, and, and that actually lays out the framework that you just discussed, um, which is, I think you did a very admirable job of explaining that uh, verbally, but it's obviously quite complicated. Uh, and the piece uh, shows it graphically in a, in a uh, you know several different ways. And th these three ideas of growing the pie, dividing the pie, and then preserving the ingredients. I think that's a really smart framework from which to investigate this. But I would point our listeners there um, for more detail. And, and I'm sure Kautar and team are uh, working on the next piece uh, as we speak. Um, Ricardo, maybe just turning to you uh, for somewhat of a reaction to that, because you know, obviously, as you and the team analyze sovereigns uh, from an ESG perspective, it's it's a different animal, as uh, Kautar just described, necessarily than than analyzing a company. And surely, emerging markets, uh, just given their nature, present some very unique challenges when it comes to ESG themselves. So, as you think about you know what some of the big challenges are about implementing. ESG frameworks and um, analyzing ESG metrics for emerging markets. Uh, I'd be interested to hear, you know, what are some of the big ones that come to mind? So there's two main constraints at analyzing ESG indicators or uh, doing a good, proper ESG analysis on, on sovereigns. And these um, is lessons that we have learned and that uh, Kautar has led the team on. The two main challenges are, one is data. Uh, the data are very sparse, it's not consistent, um, doesn't seem to be measuring the same thing across countries in a lot of times. Uh, it is uh, spotty, it is not, doesn't exist for across countries and most times 
it's very spotty across time. Uh, so data are a big problem on these indicators. And the second one is methodological. A lot of investors, a lot of uh, quick analysts out there, they have perceived that by doing simple cross-country regressions on what we perceive to be unreliable data, <clears throat> they can come to strong conclusions. And we are puzzled by how much that line of thinking has permeated a lot of the ESG discussion that has been taking place. And the problem is we believe in ESG because we believe in sustainable investment and we believe, as Kautar said, that in order for us to invest in countries that will be there in the future, they need to do those three things that Qatar mentioned correctly. Now, it is not easy to measure because the data are not reliable yet. And certainly it is not easy methodologically to combine those across countries as if every country was exactly the same, as if the same priorities at different levels of development uh, should be the same across countries. Let me be more specific. <clears throat> Can we punish a country because it is lagging on development and therefore doesn't have the same tools to face environmental challenges? However, most of analysts out there uh, take that as a negative from an ESG perspective and as a constraint on how much they can invest in countries that are more exposed to environmental challenges because they're less developed. So from our perspective, we believe that if we are going to invest in dif different countries, we need to realize that they are at different stages of development and the bars that we should impose on the different countries at their different levels of development should be different. And that doesn't permeate in most of the ESG analysis that we have seen out there and that Kautar has correctly pointed out for the team. And we have uh, been doing so much work on trying to address. That's a really good point in terms of the this idea of direction of travel and you know incentivizing kind of positive trends. And I know I've, I've read your team's work on countries like El Salvador before, where there's a real case to be made that uh, trends are improving, or at least at the time uh, you were saying that that uh, the trends were improving, uh, and therefore um, you know you, you saw a positive uh, investment case there. I mean, Qatar, how are you and the team dealing with some of these challenges that Ricardo just mentioned, whether it's these inconsist inconsistent methodologies or unreliable data or this kind of disconnect between, you know, maybe countries that are improving but are starting at a, you know, challenge starting point, maybe they're not getting the capital they need. How, how do you even kind of think about all that from, a, from an investment perspective? I think it's through three main priorities uh, that we have in the team and I think have been driving us even before ESG became a, such a fashion. I think it's avoiding oversimplification. It's about being passionate about the countries that we follow and it's about following them closely. Uh, why these three are quite important principles is because I think that they would avoid the, the pitfalls of just wanting to you know, do ESG for the sake of ESG or falling into the tick the box trap. Um, and uh, actually, it's funny that you are mentioning El Salvador. We wrote uh, back then a small case study example of El Salvador, but things are very fastly moving in El Salvador. And therefore, uh, we make sure to follow the latest developments in terms of institutional changes, in terms of social changes, and their implication for creditworthiness in order to be very aware of what it means 
for the country's ESG and the investment implications for us. I think overall, um, these three principles translate into remaining quite anchored into our research process, including our ESG research process. So we have developed, as you mentioned, um, and as I described in this piece, uh, a set of indicators that we look at. We have developed heat maps um, where we look at how the country scores on different sets of indicators. So we, we remain data anchored, but we are aware of the shortcomings of the data. And therefore, we are not going to do a simplification exercise of putting together a synthetic score based on these indicators and then calling it an ESG score and then just scoring or evaluating the country on this on these factors only or on this synthetic score only. We are going to look at all the different indicators, how the country uh, has evolved on each indicator. So the trend is very important as Ricardo was describing. And uh, we are going to try to see how that ties into the country's history, the country's um, institutional evolution, uh, on the country's fragility, how that impacts the country's um, you know, environmental resilience um, in order to have a comprehensive assessment uh, of the country's ESG uh, situation and then reflect that into our uh, investment position. Yeah, and and in that last piece that I mentioned, uh, you do uh, include a full uh, appendix of uh, different indicators. And um, again, not to uh, belabor it, but I would point our listeners to uh, a piece called "Finding the Right Sovereign ESG Indicators: A Greek Tragedy?" Question mark uh, on bearings dot com, um, where you can read all about this because it's really quite robust and detailed in terms of all the different potential indicators. Um, that are out there. So I, I think that's it's it's a subject that you can really go deep on, as is ESG, of course, you know, much more broadly. So we we in this conversation, I think we've we've kind of hit the tip of the iceberg here. And I guess that's kind of the goal to to give our listeners a sense, um, not necessarily for the entire picture, but more almost a kind of a framework for how you and the team are, are thinking about it, because it's something that you all are spending a tremendous amount of time on. And uh, again, I appreciate that you're, that you're sharing your findings um, in writing. Um, okay, Ricardo, as we come to a close here, uh, I'm going to give you the final word here. If you think about, you know, from an investor's standpoint, looking ahead um, you know, the next six, 12 months for emerging markets, taking everything we've talked about here from developed market interest rates to inflation, to the pandemic, to this whole, you know, longer term, broader conversation of ESG, taking all that into account, um, you know, what do you think investors uh, should really be focused on when it comes to emerging markets over the next six to 12 months? Well, I would uh, recommend investors to look for those managers that actually go into the deep down analysis of what is it exactly that they're investing in. Um, and that implies a very good knowledge of the countries, um, very good understanding of ESG. At the end of the day, ESG is about investing, investing in sustainable uh, returns. And so our goal is to provide investors with that, with those returns, the sustainable returns. And I would say the proof is in the pudding. We have been out of countries that, with time, proven to be not sustainable. Among them, Venezuela, um, Argentina, uh, Zambia, 
Lebanon, and in more recent times, we have actually switched in El Salvador. Um, we mentioned El Salvador a couple of times in this call. Those are countries in which we perceive uh, some significant event on the ESG front. In some of them has been uh, the governance indicator, but in the case of Venezuela, was also the social component that have led us to uh, consider them not to be sustainable. And long and behold, those countries, El Salvador being the exception because it's the most recent, have seen their weights in the index go down and down, their returns being poor. Um, so bottom line is um, looking at the countries, going deep down in the analysis, um, distinguishing between the good and the bad investments is the key uh, to investing in emerging markets uh, now and it has been in the past. And going forward, it will continue to be. The backdrop is very constructive. There's lots of opportunities, uh, but there's also some landmines that investors need to be aware of and they need to avoid. Yeah, that's a great uh, summary. And uh, yeah, for me, I think that this kind of idea that that both you and Kautar were talking about in terms of differentiation and you know doing the work, uh, doing the, the kind of bottom-up fundamental work, country by country, credit by credit, uh, is really uh, critical. Whether you're talking about ESG or or um, you know economic drivers more broadly. So, uh, well, again, I, I think this is kind of meant to be a high level uh, overview type conversation to give folks uh, a sense of of you know where where you are broadly. I think um, if if they'd like to dive more deep into it, I'm sure there's opportunities for follow-up conversations. And, uh, and, and again, some of the, the literature that I've pointed to on bearings.com, I would highly recommend checking out. So, uh, well, Ricardo, Kautar, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and uh, I hope to get you both back on the show again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Craig. All right. Speak soon. Thanks for listening to episode number 10 of season four of Streaming Income. Remember to follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.